Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. Today's episode is absolutely worth your time. I talk with one of the leading relationship experts about all kinds of stuff that you're probably going to want to know, like what what drives infidelity? What happens if someone cheats? When do you call an attorney? When do you call a therapist? What's going on in people's heads? What's going on with modern relationships and what's changed? We don't talk so much about relationships as being part of what makes us high-performance human beings, and we go really deep in this episode, and it's just packed with useful information for you. So listen through all the way to the end, and you'll like what you hear. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that scientists are now using virtual reality to reduce phantom pain in paraplegics. A Swiss neuroscientists published this new research that shows when paraplegics can't feel their body, they feel pain, similar to phantom limb syndrome. And just allowing them to see with virtual reality their body reduces the pain and it can do it actually permanently. And what they could do is just provoke an illusion that the legs were being lightly tapped when the person was actually being tapped on their back above where their spinal cord was damaged. And what they're doing there is just reconnecting parts of the nervous system. They're saying, if I've got no connection, it's pain. And by remapping these things that are entirely outside of their conscious awareness, they're re- permanently changing brain mappings and reducing pain. What this means for you is that there are lots of things going on in your nervous system that you have no knowledge or awareness of. But if these guys can hack these in these extreme cases, there's probably stuff going on in there that you can also hack. Before we get into today's show, if you haven't had a chance to try Bulletproof ice cream, you totally have to check this out. You can make it with brain octane oil or XCT oil. And this is something that I give to my kids for breakfast. I like to take the Bulletproof chocolate powder and do it as well. You can do it with vanilla. And it has no sugar in it. What it has is lots of raw egg yolks, which might sound gross, but the traditional recipe for ice cream is raw egg, yolks and cream. In this case, using butter and brain octane because butter has different effects on your body than cream. It is the most delicious, creamy, amazing dessert. And it's actually called get some ice cream because I discovered this when I was working on creating uh, new fertility in my wife, Dr. Lana. Uh, she was infertile when I met her and we put together a program that was the basis of my first book that restored her fertility. So we could have two kids at age 39 and 42. And part of this was her eating ice cream every night. And we call it get some ice cream because it has everything in it that your body wants to have in order to have healthy kids. So you eat it. An hour later, the signal came in from the environment around you that says, you know what? I've got everything I need to make a healthy baby. Let's go try. So I guarantee you this stuff can work better than vodka (laughs) if that's your goal. And it's delicious, creamy, amazing, and it's got tons of the right kinds of fats for you. The recipe is on the website. Just head to bulletproof.com. You can get your brain octane oil and you can pick up the other ingredients like the chocolate and the recipes on bulletproof.com as well. Today's guest is Esther Perel. She's a sex and relationship therapist who has appeared on Oprah and she's got 20 million views on her TED Talks. Uh, she's a best-selling author, New York Times best-selling author actually, of a book called The State of Affairs, Rethinking Infidelity. She was also just the the featured speaker at the Bulletproof Conference a couple weeks ago, which was 
amazing. The audience just loved it. And the reason that Esther came to the Bulletproof Conference is that I met her at a, a group called Summit Series uh, several years ago, where she gave this amazing talk that was just people overflowing from it about relationships and about just looking at them really, really clearly. And I got to know her, spent some time there, and was like, wow, she, she knows some things about relationships. And as you know from listening to the show for a while, there's three big behaviors that are driven by the mitochondria in our body. There's run away from or kill scary things, eat everything, and have sex with everything else. Esther's on the show because she can talk about having sex with everything else. So Esther, that's an introduction you've never had before. Indeed. <laughs> Welcome to the show. My pleasure. Now, you, you regularly just captivate audiences when you talk about you know, what's really going on in relationships and what's changed in all this. But I think people listening would love to know, how did you get started as a relationship therapist? Is this because you had bad relationships or you want to know more? Like what motivated you to start studying all the things that you study? So I've been interested in psychology and human behavior and human relations probably since I was a teenager. Uh, I actually don't think I had relationship problems. I hated my teachers. I didn't <laughs> like school. And I thought there must be a better way to deal with young people. I, I just began reading a lot. I went to university. I studied psychology. I studied primarily educational psychology. Um, and then I studied at various kinds of therapies and how to use the arts, particularly psychodrama and music therapy. But when I came to the States, um, I discovered systemic therapy, general systems theory, which probably underlines a lot of the things that you do as well. And yes. the notion that relationships occur in a context, that families are systems, that relationships are systems. They have structures, boundaries, hierarchies, coalitions. They have growth curves, etc. And I became fascinated with systemic thinking about relationships, personal and professional. Um, at that time, there was very little couples therapy. And it was kind of the, you, you know, you worked with a family and then as you dealt with the problems around the children, usually you realize that sometimes something was going on in the couple as well. And over time, since the couple has become the central unit of a family today, so did the field of couples therapy. And so for the last 34 years, I have been primarily a couples therapist working with individuals and families as well, but a couples therapist, romantic couples family relations, co-founders, um, team members, and I love the diet of the couple. <laughs> it, it's awesome the way you just think of everything as a system and the fact that you can do relationship counseling with a startup team, even though it's a different kind of relationship, I, I think is, is awesome because my experience has been that, that for sure. If you have poor relationships at home, you'll have them in the office. You have poor relationships in the office, you probably have them at home. It may be different problems, but the problems can be there. And something about your work led you also, though, to write specifically about affairs, which I think has captivated everyone's attention. And you argue that affairs can teach you about relationships. So if, if your partner has an affair or you have an affair, what are you actually going to learn from that? You know, it's like we know that we don't learn only from studying Google or Apple. We learn from looking at crisis and looking at a breakdown of a relationship, um, a betrayal, distrust, breaches. 
help us understand what it takes to experience repair, resilience. Um, so when I say what we learn from, from affairs is that you, it is a huge crisis in a relationship. It is one of the most important crises these days in modern couples. It is one of the leading causes of divorce. It's hugely painful. And, um, and, and from there, you really get a sense as to what does it take to define boundaries? What does it take to heal trust once it is broken? How do you recommit and what is the nature of commitment today? Um, how do you reconnect erotically so that you don't just survive, but you actually come back to life as a couple uh, and you experience a sense of vitality in your relationship because there are systems that don't die and then there are systems that thrive and that's not the same. And, we, and I just chose one crisis. I could have chosen other crises, but this one is so acute today and has so many new meanings. I thought it really encompasses the entire human drama. So anytime there's a, an affair or cheating in a relationship, you're, you're dealing with the F word, um, forgiveness, mm -hmm. <laughs> or you're, uh, uh, you know, you're, you're either going to end the relationship or you're going to decide you know, to forgive the person. Uh, how often do you find that people go down the, the forgiveness and rebuild the relationship path versus just like, it's over, you, you betrayed my trust, so I'm not going to let that go? So look, on the one hand, uh, we know that this is one of the leading causes of divorce, and we know that infidelity is often a break of the relationship. But we also know that it can be a remake of the relationship. And the ones who break usually go to the lawyers. The ones who remake come to therapists. So in my <laughs> office, in, in all therapists' offices, I would say the vast majority of people we see are people who try to rebuild. And that doesn't mean they forgive sometimes, by the way. They learn to accept. They learn to integrate this event, this crisis, into the larger history of their relationship. They had 22 years before. They may have another 25 after. And this does not become the central event that defines the entire marriage or relationship. Um, so I would say we have a biased view as therapists because we see more those who are looking to rebuild. Um, and then the question is, what does rebuilding look like? What kind of outcomes can we look for in people who choose to stay together? Um, and then sometimes forgiveness is partial. And then sometimes people need to forgive themselves. It's not just that you want your partner to forgive you, but some people live with their own perennial guilt over their actions. So um, forgiveness, acceptance, integration is part of one cluster. So why do people cheat in the first place? I think everyone listening, it, either if they've cheated or been cheated on or, or neither one but have it in the back of their mind, what drives that behavior? You know, the interesting thing, of course, is that once you ask the questions, why do people cheat, you've already framed the whole experience. Cheating is something that you do to somebody else, but that is not necessarily what it means for what mm -hmm. you're doing for yourself. This experience of infidelity is a dual perspective. It's always what it did to you but it's also what it meant for me. So why people stray? First of all, you, the meanings and the motives for doing it uh, are multiple. You know, uh, I'm resentful. You've neglected me. You've been having an affair with your job for the past 12 years. I can not get your attention on anything. You have rejected me sexually for years. Uh, I am lonely. 
I feel numb. I feel beleaguered by responsibility. The last time I ever did something that was just for me, I can't remember. I have been taking care of everybody. I don't remember who I am. I long for a different version of myself. Um, those are the kind of more negative reasons or the reasons that have to do with the relationship. And then, you know, often these are love stories. People fall in love with somebody else. People fall in love with a different version of themselves. People reconnect with lost parts of themselves. And those reasons have very little to do with the relationship itself. Um, this is done by people in good relationships, in lousy relationships, in open relationships. All relationships are susceptible to the experience of infidelity actually. Um, and often by people who are not chronic philanderers, that's a group. But a lot of the ones we see in our office, I would say the vast majority, it's often people who have been faithful and committed partners and loyal partners for decades. And for that matter, partners who often continue to be loyal at the same time as they are massively unfaithful. What does that mean to be loyal and unfaithful at the same time? It means that my commitment to our relationship, to our family, to our children, to your alcoholic brother, to your mother who's in the nursing home, to our community, to, uh, to our finances, to our home, I continue to, treat, to, to, to be committed and to deliver on all of those expectations of me. I still show up every night. I still uh, uh, take care of, uh, uh, of the house that was destroyed by the floods in your, at your fa father's house. And at the same time, I also have sometimes another relationship. It's this very complex, multi-layered story that goes on. People often have very stereotypic ideas. I'm loyal, I'll give you the best example of loyal. We know, by the way, that with longevity, since this is part of what you deal with, an enormous amount of infidelity actually takes place in people over 60. And many of these people have often spouses or partners who are ill, sometimes who don't even remember their names. They visit them all the time in the nursing homes. They have never left their relationship. And at the same time, they have sought the comfort of somebody else. That's an example. I'm loyal to my partner till the day they die. I will be there at the nursing home or at the hospital all the time. And I also have sought tenderness, love, connection, touch with somebody else. And that's a, a very different scenario than. But that's the uh, scenarios that we don't think about, yeah. right? And, and there, this is. That's pretty arguable that that's, that, that that's even a healthy behavior. Um, although it's going to create a lot of uh, a lot of emotional stuff in all the people around you. Uh, now I remember but back. But you know what? I hear yeah. so many people because I've now been for a month on tour here, and people tell me the, the truth when they come to sign the book. The number of times I've heard that story: my mother was sick for years, my father was sick for years. I know my father remarried, my mother remarried. I think she already knew that person before, but she stayed loyal to my father to the last day. And then, or she threw out, and I thought it was one of the great, the best things that could happen for him or for her to have another come. The children understand it, the children who are themselves often in their 40s and 50s. And what it says is this is so complex and ubiquitous an experience that we really need 
not a model that's a one-size-fits-all, and we need something that captures the complexities of lives rather than the way we just often go black and white um, and massively judgmental. This is not to justify anything, but it helps us understand when you ask me why do people cheat, this is part of the range of reasons why people do it. And, and that does open the definition of what is cheating, what is not cheating. Mm -hmm. uh, how is this going to change? I, I've been pretty public about the fact that I, I think it's very reasonable for me to live to at least 180 years. Um, yesterday, I was recording a podcast with Peter Diamandis, and he's like, oh yeah, my number is 700. <laughs> What's going to happen in relationships as we are able to be more like 50-year-olds when we're 100 or 150? Do you see big shifts in the way loyalty and relationships happen? Do you know where the highest rate of growth of HIV is happening at this moment? No. In nursing homes. Wow. We, that, is, that is CDC fact. I had no idea. Okay. <laughs> so, so it's happening. Everybody knows that 60 is the new 40. And that when people say, is this it? When they have a, a crisis of, of meaning in their life, for example, and they say, am I going to live like this for another 25, 30 years as they are 50 or 60 years old saying that? That is a concept that would have been unthinkable 50 years ago. That notion, you know, 100 years ago, we died six years after we were done raising our children, and that was an average of 47. Today, you arrive at the end of a certain cycle, and then you say, and what's next? And you project yourself into a whole different sense of future. And you want to still feel that something new is going to happen in your life. You don't want to feel like it's just going to be the same for another few decades. And you want to either reinvent yourself or regenerate in a certain way or pass on what knowledge you have accumulated. And that's called a generative experience for the people that come after you. You want to continue to feel massively relevant. And that will enter not just in your romantic relationship, it will render in the choices you make for what you do, for how you stay, for how you stay, you know, you're not just going to want to play bingo. You're going to want to still do socially relevant things. So, so do you foresee people remaining faithful for a hundred years to one partner? But people right now are living a life of serial monogamy. They are doing it for years before they have their long-term committed relationship or their marriage. They've had quite a few relationships before. We marry an average of 10 years later in the West today. Then we may stay married with somebody for 20, 30, maybe 40 years. And then we start again, either because of death or because of divorce. But, you know, this continues. By definition, at this particular moment, we have shifted the definition of monogamy that used to be one person for life to one person at a time. And uh, people will tell you that they are monogamous in all their relationships, but they will have had, you know, three or four before they marry, and maybe two or three in the context of marriage. Uh, Not always because of infidelity, but simply because of longevity. What is the, currently, what is the incidence of, of cheating? Like what percentage of couples have uh, infidelity in their relationship at least once? Look, we have no idea. 
there is, first of all, because there is no universally agreed upon definition of what even constitutes an infidelity. In the past, it was very clear. You had sex, you got pregnant, you had a baby, and the color of hair of that baby did not resemble yours. So the markers were very clear. Today, what are we talking about? Is it a life? Is it a love affair? Is it a chat room? Is it a massage with happy ending? Is it prostitution? Is it pornography? Is it uh, staying secretly active on your dating apps? Where do we draw the lines is one of the big discussions today. We know that the definition keeps on expanding. And we know that it's never been easier to cheat and it's never been harder to keep a secret. That said, the numbers go between 30 and 70, depending on how you define it. But we don't learn much from asking, have you had sex with somebody other than your partner in the last 12 months? And what does sex mean? And since Clinton came to for the forefront, that definition has been revised a few times. So what are we talking about? People lie. Men will boast and they will exaggerate. And women will hide and deny because there are still nine countries where women can be killed just for straying. So women have always hidden their sexual lives and men have always pretended they had sexual lives they didn't have. And that has, does not change when you ask the questions around infidelity. I think what's more interesting is that if I ask an audience from 400 to 4,000, how many of you have been affected by the experience of infidelity in your lives as the children of parents who, who were unfaithful or fell in love with someone else or left the family to be with a new partner as the friend whose shoulder is wet because somebody's been weeping on it as the confidant as the three main protagonists, you name it, about 80% of the people will raise their hands. That, you know, is not just a husband and a wife or two men or two women. This is, the affairs are systemic and they are intergenerational. And that is what is, they, they have accompanied marriage from the day marriage was invented. Um, there have been transgressions. In history, Men were not unfaithful. They were just being men. That's what they were called. Women were unfaithful. When Clinton, uh, when everything came out about what Clinton did, he, he kind of opened up some conversations around, like you said, what infidelity is. But when you would talk to like leadership in France, <laughs> they would just laugh and say, really? The president of a country had a mistress? We don't care. Why, why are you so worried about it? What are the differences you see in, in different cultures around acceptance of this, both for men and women? I mean, are there places where it's normal for women to have affairs and it's not as secret as it used to be? Are there places where it's expected and normal? And where does the U.S. fall no. on the spectrum there? No, I think that it is, it is a taboo okay. everywhere. For women. It is not normal for okay. men and women today. Today it's for men and women. The part part of romantic love has actually made it, a, a, you know, monogamy, exclusivity, fidelity is a dual mandate of conviction for both partners, be it a, a straight couple or a, a gay couple. Um, the difference is that, and Americans, by the way, don't cheat an iota less than the French, just so we are very okay. clear on this. But the, the experience here is framed much more in moral terms rather than in relational terms. 
meaning in France it hurts. It isn't necessarily thought of as it's wrong. It happens. People expect this to be a, something that, that is part of adult life. They don't want it. They don't hope for it by far, and they are no less hurt by it than anybody else here. Americans have this whole notion that the French, which I am not, <laughs> by the way, uh, it's very important to, to reiterate, that, they, that this is normal and that everybody has it. The big difference between French infidelity, actually, and American infidelity is that in France, it's much more often a long-term relationship. Okay, that's a big difference there. It's... It's it's not it's not nearly the kind of thing here where people are constantly trying to make it look like it means nothing. And I was drunk, and I was just in a bar, and I was at a hotel, and I, you know, and it it means nothing. It means nothing. The French don't go around telling you the whole time it means nothing. It's long relationships that accompany and that exist outside of the marriage. The big difference is that traditional cultures that are more collective oriented. And don't see the marriage as only being between two individuals, but see a marriage as being between two families, have always compromised around infidelity in order to prevent divorce, in order to keep the family together. In the, in the more individualistic societies like the United States, if you have betrayed me, it deserves breaking up the entire system with all the dissolutions of the family, with all the bonds and the connections that are going to be severed. And that is where the outcome is different. The Clinton thing, what it highlighted, was that in the United States you can divorce multiple times <coughs> and people barely blink an eye. In other countries, that is seen as outrageous. Preserving the family is the primary value. And here, preserving the individual is the primary value. That's the fundamental shift. And there is not a better or a not better. These are different emphasis in, in the society and in the culture. I, I've seen huge shifts. I work with a lot of people under 30. Uh, and so many of them have tried uh, polyamory or you know, dating multiple people at the same time. And the numbers are showing that people are getting married much later. Uh, people under 30, they're just not getting married like they would have even 10 years ago. Um, is is fear of infidelity part of that or just saying, well, it's going to happen, so let's just build it in? And, and like, what, what's going on with that? Because it seems like a really big societal shift that hasn't happened maybe since the 60s. I don't think polyamory has much to do with fear of infidelity. In the 60s, when people were flirting with the notions of consensual non-monogamy, the notion was the rejection of the bourgeois model of marriage. The meaning of consensual non-monogamy today is very different. People today want long-term relationships that still carry all the values of the traditional marriage, companionship, economic support, family life, social respectability, and they want the romantic marriage which is the one person for everything, best friend, passionate lover, confidant. And they want a self-actualization marriage, which is the value of authenticity and truth to the self. It is those two values that bring in the notions of polyamory, meaning I want a committed, stable, secure relationship, but I don't want it at the expense 
sense of my personal freedom and self-expression and authentic self. And, the, and that authentic self for some people includes a sexual self-expression. And, it is, and that's where the notion comes in. It's not done to avoid infidelity. There is a notion that it may avoid infidelity and ultimately what it will do is maybe make the relationship last longer because we both will experience a sense of self-actualization inside our relationship and therefore it will be a stronger couple. So that's the, the goal. The goal is to, to last, to be stronger and to not compromise the self in the context of a connection. In between, the idea then will be, you know, if we do this with honesty, truthfulness and transparency, we may also be able to avoid the secrecy, the lying and the deception that come with all the transgressions of infidelity. I, I have a few friends who are, I'll call them successful polyamorists, but they're few and far between. Most of the people that I know who've tried this, who tend to be younger, tend to be highly anxious <laughs> and uh, like, like they're experiencing a lot of emotional pain uh, working through uh, all of the, the various things that there really isn't a roadmap for. Do you, do you think this is a, a fad that's going to sort of go away or is this a, a change in relationships that's likely to stick around? You know, for me, when I try to understand uh, consensual non-monogamy today, uh, I think what must people have been thinking 60 years ago when we were supposed to be virgin? <laughs> this, is the new, this is the conversation about virginity 60 years later. What, would we, what did we think about people who had sex before marriage? God, they were labeled in every way possible. Mm -hmm. You know, and gay people, for God's sakes, they were an aberration altogether. The life of a young gay person today and 60 years ago has nothing in common. You know, when I go around and I try to write an article about creative couples, robust couples that have a spark, and I ask people, can you give me a few examples of those that inspire you. The majority of the people can maybe name one, one couple. If I ask them to tell me a list of business people that inspire them, or innovators, or creatives, or musicians, or artists, the lists are endless. I have yet to see people give me five couples that they say, those people inspire me, they have a spark, great relationships. So whenever we say this doesn't work, I think a part of it is because it's new. There are no scripts. It requires a certain maturity. It isn't the right thing for people who have anxious attachment. It really is not for everybody. But the other thing doesn't seem to have worked that well either. <laughs> but, you know, if Apple sold you a product that fails 50% of the time, you wouldn't buy it. But that's what's happening with modern marriage. So relationships today are complex. The relationship rule books are shifting under our feet. People have to navigate a host of new challenges that never existed before. Multiple decisions that they have to make for themselves that used to be made by religious institutions. And I don't know we know where this is going to go. I don't know that it's a fad. You know, it used to, in the, not too long ago, we would have said a blended family, impossible. Impossible. What does that mean? You're going to raise the kids of somebody else? So we are often very quick at dismissing when people are trying new things. Um, I don't think that blended family is for everybody. 
some people should not, you know, even bother trying. And I don't think some people should have kids. And I don't think some people should try to do no, no, no. When I say should, I, meaning it's not for them. They may try it and then realize that's not the way I want to live my life. But I also think that some people may not live their life in one way only if they're going to live as long as we do. You may try a period of this and then a decades of something else, depending on where you are at. Um, you know, who, who would have thought we could have gay families with children? God, could they have kids? And what would it mean to, re to have two mothers or two fathers raising a child? We have shifted so many norms, you know. Um, I, was, I did a lot of work this week around assault. I, I led a bunch of conversations around the, the Me Too movement at this moment. And, you know, how do you create change, social change? And I just was thinking, besides the, the, the LGBT experience, corporal punishment. It's only two generations ago. It was absolutely normal to hit your kid because it builds character rather than to talk to your kid and to, you, and to explain. And people used to say, that's a fad. You know, try talking with your children like they are some reasonable people. They just need a good lesson. You know, and today... It's, it's inconceivable in the West to think that corporal punishment is the norm. So when you go to other examples, it helps you see how something that once began as a minority people that challenged the norm, at some point, not all of them, can become a new norm. And then when you look back, you wonder, how did this happen? Teachers were paddling students. It was normal in every educational institution to get hit. That's, I just look constantly for other major relationships, changes like that. And then you get a perspective that when you're in the beginning, when you're in the thick of a, of, of a new thing that emerges, it looks like it's a, it's a bunch of crazy stuff, you know. Um, but I'll give you another example that for me is probably the, the, the most relevant. I spent 20 years working with mixed couples interracial, intercultural, interreligious couples. And people used to say impossible. Marriage is hard enough, those people, this, those relationships never work. Now remember, the first intermarriage in America was Catholic and Protestants. Doesn't work. <laughs> Crazy people. Then it was Jews and Gentiles. Doesn't work. Crazy people. Then it was black and white because that was criminal till not too long ago. And everybody said this doesn't work. And part of why it sometimes didn't work is because these couples were so isolated. The majority of poly people don't tell people they're poly or non-monogamous people. They can't even say it out loud because their jobs, God knows, you know, they can't say it out loud, you know. So once things become more integrated and maybe they are less isolated, maybe then actually they get more resources from watching other people do it. And maybe then things begin to work better. So we don't know if it doesn't work for all kinds of personality reasons or if it doesn't work because it doesn't have yet sustainability from the society. Got it. So there's a lot of judgment that can, that can be out there that can create relationship stress that wouldn't otherwise be there. I, that makes a lot of sense. I'm giving you complex no, the, answers. This, this right? is what the show's about. It is a system, and I, I love your answers. That's why I wanted you to be on stage at the conference. Now, <laughs> you mentioned earlier that some people go to attorneys if there's infidelity in their marriage, and some people go to a, a therapist. Now, 
how would people know what's the best choice? Uh, like, do you flip a coin? Like, like how, how do you how do you know? <laughs> what what would the thought process be? Oh, I would always say you go to a therapist first. I would say the same thing if you're in business. I would say you go to a coach first. You go to a mediator first. You go to the non-antagonistic, non-adversary approaches first. You try, you know, and you go to try to not change the other, but you try to go and you try to change yourself first. Uh, It depends. If I'm three months with you, we don't have that much invested. You know, we don't share. We just began six months, one year, two years. But if we are 20 years together, 15 years together, we've built something. It's worth it. You know, it goes by the investment. I've offered that advice to a, a few friends over the years, saying, look, if, if your car was seriously broken, you're probably not going to open up the hood and try and repair a modern car. You go to an expert to see what's wrong and then to see what, what the right choice would be. And we have this do-it-yourself mentality here, where especially around relationships, where or maybe I'll ask a couple of friends who aren't necessarily experts in relationships either, and then you you kind of wander off. And, and certainly, uh, I did that earlier on in my relationships. I've, I've been in a faithful marriage for more than a decade, but before that, I I think there's also times in life when just when people are are younger, there tends to be more relationship stuff because you haven't had as much practice, but I. I've, I would just offer that to people listening. If there are problems in, in your relationship, you need to go see someone like Esther to talk about it because you want someone who's studied the problem and can help you diagnose it and figure out whether calling an attorney <laughs> makes sense or whether you want to right, reinvest correct. in the relationship. But, but doing right. it all by yourself is just the, the worst thing you can do because you don't have enough data to make a good decision. So I, I love your answer there. And I'll add one other thing. Um, It's really interesting. It's a line that I say to many people in my office. We all have relationship issues that we're going to need to work on. All of us. It's just part of human nature. The only question is going to be with whom. You don't want to work on them this relationship. You're going to have to work on them in the next relationship because you're the constant factor. Yeah, Personal you know, development matters. At some point, you're going to have to look at yourself, my dear. <laughs> you know, how you communicate, how you avoid, how you fight, how you dismiss, how you judge, how you elude, all the things you do, how you compete, all the stuff we do. It's okay if you say you don't want to do it with this person, but, uh, but you're going to have to at some point do it. So Sometimes I say, you know what, people, you may just as well do it now, and then you'll decide what you want to do with your relationship. And when people actually become more equipped, more skillful, more self-aware, relationally self-aware, not experts on what the other person's doing wrong, the relationship often improves. And then they don't need to ask me if they need to go to the lawyer. They tell me, we, I think we kind of came and did what we were supposed to do here. I absolutely love that answer, and thank you for sharing that. And and for people listening, <laughs> Esther's a top expert in the field. She knows what she's talking about there. There's no way to escape personal growth. Either you can hide from it in your relationship or in other parts of your life, uh, or, not, or uh, you can just face it. And the earlier you face it and the more deeply you face it, the better off everything is, not just your relationship, but your performance, your happiness, everything. So thank you. Thank you That's for putting right. it the way you did. Uh, I have another question for you. 
you have your own podcast called Where Should We Begin? And you go into a lot of universal truths about modern love, but some of the podcasts are, are really gut-wrenching. How do you, both for podcasts and just as a therapist, how do you leave that energy behind? Like, How do you stay sane when you're dealing with all these people in a lot of pain and, and, and all that all the time? What's your practice for just letting go and staying grounded yourself? It's a great question. Um, I do a lot of physical stuff. Uh, I, I do much better if I've been actually active physically in the morning before I start to see patients. The, the, uh, it could be running, could be the gym, could be yoga, uh, but I need to move. <laughs> it's like my body has to to wake up. Um, I have, you know, I have days where I come home at the end of many hours of being in the trenches of people's pain, and I don't want to talk to anybody. I just want to be quiet and. I bike home. I bike everywhere. That moment, that trip on the bike, actually, and I bike on the bike path where the terrorist attack was yesterday. That's my stretch, actually. Um, I just feel like I can calm down. You know, I'm outside. Um, sometimes I just want to go out and see friends. I want to be with my people who are now nurturing me. You know, so I get fed. By, by by my friends, I get fed by my husband. I my boys are out of the house now, but I'll call them and we'll chat together. So I think I'm very surrounded by 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 people, by my own connections in which I am not in that role. Um, I I I have a lot of fun. I go to see art. I do you know I do things that are not about um, work. I I have a life outside of my work. It's probably a very important thing. I travel, um, and I do things that I enjoy doing. Um, I have learned over the years to not bring it home like that. I'm lucky that my husband is also a psychologist, and we can I can if I'm really overwhelmed or or plagued by something, I will come. Ask, I I have to talk a few minutes. Can I can I share a case with you and just you know, what my experience is, what I felt today, what, the fear I have, the uncertainty about something I did. Um, there are situations that are really complicated. And then I call colleagues. I call colleagues and I say, I need you to collaborate on this case with me. I, this is too much for me alone. This is complicated. I, or I, I supervision. I just, this is, this is not my expertise. I know what I don't know. This is one thing you get with experience. You know, you know the things that you really, they, they, you have seen this before, you know, you know, like you. But then there is the situations where you say, this one is the expert on that. I have not dealt with that kind of suicide. I don't have not dealt with that kind of eating disorder. I have not dealt with that kind of prison life. I haven't dealt with so many things that I haven't dealt with. Then I call the people who I think know a lot about it, and I say, do you have a moment for me? And I, I am so good at reaching out and asking for help. That's one thing I've never struggled with, is to, right. is to reach out and get You're help. You're taking your own advice. You, you call an expert? <laughs> when, when, yes, yes, yes. Uh, and, and that some people seem to have learned that from their parents to be wired that way. That was one of my biggest weaknesses. Um, in my in my twenties, was that I wouldn't ask anyone for help, and it limited my career, it limited relationships. And if you're uh, if you're listening to this and sort of and that that strikes home for you, it's really a good idea to rely on experts to help you move more quickly through whatever you're working on. Oh it, it's, my god! Uh, you know what I have done? 
I have brought experts into my office. I have a few people who I admire, who I think when I am stuck and I don't know where to go anymore with people, where I I call them and I say, I would like you to see this couple. And I bring the other therapist in my office to see the couples or the person in front of me while I learn watching them work. Awesome. That That is... I didn't do that when I was 30, but I can do that now. That's impressive. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, it's like my private university. I, it's not just that I ask the expert. I watch the expert do it. Any of you who can be apprentice, it's the old model of the apprentice. I was mentored, so this is a very easy way for me. Show me how you do it. Let me see you do it. And I'll learn one or two things from your art. And I'll become better. Very beautifully put. In your career so far, Esther, what's the single moment that, that you're most grateful for, most proud of, just the thing that really sticks is, is like this made the most difference? I think there have been many. But if I look at recently, I would say the most important decision that I made the three, almost three years ago was to step outside of the clinical world in which I was living. I primarily until then had worked in the professional world of psychology. And with the TED talk, the second TED talk in particular, I decided I'm going to talk to the, I'm, I'm, I'm going to not just be a therapist. I'm going to become a thought leader. I mean, not that you set out to become a thought leader, but I'm going to, I have knowledge. Here's what I thought. I have knowledge as a therapist that our society needs. I'm not the only one. I think in general, we understand certain things about human relations and we are not enough outside our offices. That's why I did the podcast. That's why I write the books. That's why I have the YouTube channel. I think that therapists really began locked, to be locked into their little rooms with the four walls where they dispense such important experience, knowledge and help. And it is needed on a societal level. It's not just for a few individuals who have the privilege of being able to see us. So the experience of scaling this, of making this available, and of really saying, I'm going to change the conversation about some of these things. I'm not just going to change the life of a few people. And to believe that I have enough to do that, because, you know, am I really the one? Yeah. Maybe this one should do it. I'm not good enough. What do I know? I'm only an expert. You know, you go into the... And at some point, I just said, no, I actually know a lot. I'm not right, but I, have, I can contribute an enormous amount. It's not like I have the only answer, but I have a certain way of thinking that I think at this point is needed by more than what I can accomplish in my little cubicle. And from that moment on, my entire career changed. Beautiful. If you'll indulge me a little bit, you were at the Bulletproof Conference. What was your experience uh, when you went on stage when you led the breakout work afterwards? I, I just kind of describe it for me. I mean, there is nothing I like more than working with the people and to, to really go in with an audience, do the interventions, speak. To, you know, it's a kind of a group therapy <laughs> uh, in en masse, you know, um, and and to have and to see that people are not just learning something but they are experiencing something they're experiencing in the moment the possibility for for a better life i think that is you know the notion of love hacking mm -hmm. you know relationship hacking that you can actually intervene yourself in a in a system that is dysregulated or that is hungry and you can feed it better 
And I love to borrow the concepts that I learn. You know, I, I learn languages. So I listen to your language and the language of Bulletproof. And I see that this is totally applicable to relationships. Um, it starts with the fact that you include relationships in your conference because that in itself for me is, is a marker of something because I can see the places where it's left out. Everything else is addressed but relationships. It's performance <laughs> on every level. But not at home, right? <laughs> you know, but not at home or, or simply not. not it's, it's, the, it's not about the relationships. It's not about the being. It's about the doing. It, it's all relationships, even at work. It's a, it's you, if, if you're going to perform better, you still need to connect with the people you're trying to work with. So that is a tribute to you. Um, I thought there was a great energy. I thought there was an energy of people who love to learn um, and um, and who who are quite hopeful uh, in their ability to affect change in their lives. They live with a sense of agency. And they were mature. They were not, you know, they, there was a certain kind of, I, you know, I'm not a simple thinker sometimes. I realize that people sometimes may want one, two, three and techniques and quick fixes. And I have always thought if you think differently, you will act differently. Often you act inaccurately and mistakenly and misguided because your thinking is off. I don't need to tell you what to do. If I give you a shift in your perception, in your story, you will know how to, to act differently and you will make it fit you because otherwise the one, two, three, you can't have mass answers. Every life is, an, is quite unique. That's, uh, that's awesome. Th thank you for, for sharing that. It's always nice to see a perspective of someone who's very different than I am on it. <clears throat> and I, I will just say, if you want to perform better, you have to be a good person. <laughs> and that's oftentimes missing from the dialogue. Right. Now, <clears throat> we're coming up on the end of the show and there's a question that I've asked every guest and I'm really eager to hear your answer to it. If someone came up to you tomorrow and said, Esther, I want to perform better at everything I do as a human being, what are the three most important pieces of advice you'd have for me? What would you offer them? I think I always go on the number one back to my father um, who you know, I always, I would ask him, you know, what was it like in the concentration camps? How did you, how did you know who were the good ones and who were not the good ones? Um, who did you trust? How did you know whom to trust? All of these questions. He always said, my darling, the number one value in the world is human decency. Decency. It doesn't matter how rich and how smart a person is. If they can't think of you, even more than they would think about themselves, they're not a good human being. And I must have been very young, but that thing stuck. And I, I still I still think it is the right value for me. Um, it, it's, it's how you treat the other. And your ability to think about the other um, is number one. Number two is your ability to see yourself as a flawed individual while still holding yourself in high regard, which I consider the most beautiful definition of self-esteem. It's not to be perfect. It's actually to be able to see your imperfection and then still hold yourself in high regard. That is much more realistic. And the third one is probably for me, um, more than happiness, it's meaning. It's what is the meaning that you, why do you do what you do 
um, what and 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 what do, what does your life mean to you and 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 to the others? Um, and again, back to my dad. One of the greatest definitions of charisma I ever heard was my dad was not charismatic. He was not at all a big personality. I have much more the personality of my mom. But my father, when you were in his presence, you felt that you mattered. And that's why people came to see him till he was 90 years old, frail in his home. Everybody continued to come visit him of all ages because they felt good when they came to see him because he had a way of making you feel important. And somebody one day said to me, your father is so charismatic. And I thought such an interesting definition of charisma is less about you than about how you make the others feel when they're in your presence. Beautiful. Those would be the three things. Thank you, Esther. And thanks for being on Bulletproof Radio. People can find out more about your book, which is called The State of Affairs, if they go anywhere books are sold. Your podcast is Where Should We Begin? And what URL should they go to to learn more? EstherPerel.com on my website, on YouTube, um, on social, Esther Perel Official. Um, yes, the books, Mating in Captivity is my first book as well. Uh, where Should We Begin is unscripted anonymous couples counseling sessions where you literally are invited into my office to listen to how I work with other couples and get some of the ideas and vocabulary for your own relationships, all sorts of relationships. Um, Sessions with Esther Perel is my platform where I try to bring all the current knowledge on relationships for coaches, life coaches, therapists, educators, interdisciplinary. Um, that's a training platform. And um, I have a beautiful testimonial that you did for me at Mastermind Talks about three, four years ago, um, before we even met. I mean, we kind of, you, I think you had only heard me speak. Right. Do you, yeah. re, do you yeah, remember do. that? And uh, I, I think you should put that one up too. It's like, it, you, it was very beautiful what you had to say. Awesome. I will, I will find it on your website and absolutely put it up. So thanks again for being on Bulletproof Radio. Thanks for your work. Thanks for deciding to step outside of your office and share some of your knowledge and wisdom and life experience. Because when I work with people, when I talk with people one-on-one, -on -one, there are a lot of people suffering around the relationships and they're willing to work out, they're willing to eat right. But this is like that deep, dark stuff they won't look at. And you're just courageously going out there and helping people to pay attention to that as something else they can hack. So I appreciate it. I never thought of my workshop Rekindling Desire, which is also on my website. It's a whole course for people to, to kind of connect to their own spark relationally as a, as a, as a hack. But now I'm going <laughs> to use work. that. <laughs> Have a beautiful day. Thanks, Sasa. <sighs> Thank you. It's a pleasure. Bye. If you appreciated today's episode, check out Esther's work and also take a minute to head on over to bulletproof.com slash iTunes. It'll take you directly to the page where you can subscribe to the podcast. You can also leave a review. I look at those reviews, I read them, and it really matters because it helps other people find the show. So please take 10 seconds to head on over to bulletproof.com slash iTunes, which will take you right to the iTunes page and just leave a quick review. It really matters for me. Thank you.
A human upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.